Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Compassionate, caring, and cuddly. This is The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Immigration uh, will be the issue in the next hour on this 150th birthday of Canada. And we're going to start with um, Mario Canseco. Mario is the vice president of Insights West polling firm. He's from Mexico, um, very proud Canadian citizen. But they've done a lot of polling on immigrants and immigration. And we'll talk to Mario about that. And it is a huge issue in this country, constantly being talked about and discussed and uh, we've never really dealt with it, with the issue, to the satisfaction of everyone. And I'm not sure that you can to the ultimate satisfaction, but certainly we should be able to do a better job than we're doing, at, at least in, in coming to some level of agreement uh, about what immigration is, what the numbers of immigrants should be for this country on an annual basis, and um, some specifics that have been discussed. We'll talk about it all in the next hour. Marina Namat joins me, and it's been a few years since I've spoken with Marina. She was born in Tehran, in Iran, and uh, following the Iranian Revolution in 1979, she was arrested at 16 years of age, and she was placed in one of the most notorious prisons in the world, frankly, Evan Prison in Tehran. Marina, it's, uh, it's been a long time. I was, you know, I was looking for someone to speak with who really represents the the immigrant whose story is both spectacular and and honest and deep and who has a true um, love for this country and I have to tell you your name was the first name that came to mind that means a lot to me it does good to talk to you again thank you thank you for having me you were 16 years of age when you were arrested yes tell us what happened uh. You know, it, the, the revolution had just succeeded in Iran, so the revolution succeeded in 1979. And uh, very shortly after the revolution, a few months later, uh, we realized we were not gaining any political freedoms, but we were losing our personal ones. And as a girl who had grown up in a bikini on the beach, and, uh, you know, I was madly in love with Donny Osmond, and I was al- always listening to the Bee Gees, and I wanted to become a medical doctor, um, losing personal freedoms, the fact that you could not have fun anymore. Fun had become illegal. You couldn't dance, sing, or be happy or look pretty. All of it now illegal. Um, it was too much. So I protested a- along my friends, and we were on the streets, you know, for women's rights, for a right to look pretty, basically. And uh, a whole bunch of us, many of us, hundreds, Thousands of young people were uh, arrested. The arrest began, the arrest of young people began in 1981 in spring, and I was just one of the ones who was taken. So that wasn't the Green Revolution. That came later. That was when Barack Obama was in power. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. This is years earlier. So the Green Revolution was in 2009. We are talking about 1980, 81, 82. So you're a kid. Yeah. And you just want to enjoy your life, yeah. which kids want to do, mm-hmm. and which you'd been doing prior to the revolution. And now you're not only you're told you can't, but you're imprisoned in a in an awful place 
Oh, share with us what happened to you in there. Well, I mean, Evin uh, has this reputation. Uh, I had heard about the place, but places like this, nobody talks about it. It's there. It looms over the landscape of the city because it's north of Tehran at the foothills uh, of the Alborz Mountains in north of Tehran. But nobody ever talked about it. But everybody knew it was a place of torture and death, and it was built during the time of the Shah, but it wasn't shut down. After the revolution, it became bigger. So they took me and they blindfolded me, and uh, they asked me questions. And I asked, uh, I answered them honestly. I mean, I had no reason to lie. They asked me if I had attended protest rallies. I said, yeah, everybody knew I attended protest rallies. And then they wanted the whereabouts of um, an acquaintance. Um, and I didn't know where she was. I had no idea. I didn't have her address. And I told them the truth. I told them I don't know where she is. Absolute truth. And then they took me in a room. They tied me to a bare wooden bed. And they beat the living daylight out of me. And you're just a kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 16. No contact with anybody outside? Oh, no, not at all. I mean, back then, also remember, there were, there were no cell phones or anything. Like Right now, people do smuggle cell phones and stuff like that inside prisons, but including giving. But back then, there was no such thing. And things were bad. I mean, they're bad right now. But back then, it was the height of the revenge of the revolution mm-hmm. so uh, these people the interrogators and the people who ran the prison i mean they're more or less all the same but back then it was mass executions every night and they didn't care how old you were i mean you, you're 15 okay you're 92 nobody cared you got out of that prison in uh, very unique circumstances mm-hmm. can you share that with us uh yeah one of the guards uh, Ali, he, he was one of my interrogators, and he and another man, Hamadeh, interrogated me, and uh, he uh, called me. Well, you know, they basically sent you to the cell block after they inter- they beat you to a pulp, and they would send you to the cell block, and you could spend months there uh, not knowing what your sentence is, what's going to happen to you, what the heck is going on. Uh, you had no idea. There was no lawyer. There was nothing. And um, it was six months after my arrest, he called me and he said that I had had a death sentence and it was reduced to life in prison, that he reduced it to life in prison. And he wanted me to become his wife or he would arrest my parents and my boyfriend. So I thought about it. I put two and two together and I thought, you know what, I'm here, I'm in this hellhole and if I give this guy a reason... My family is going to end up here, too. So I said, fine, you know, I'll do whatever you want me to do. He made me convert to Islam. He changed my name. And at 17, I became his wife. But it wasn't that I was released. I was still a prisoner. You know, when, when I hear you talk about what happened to you, and, and you've shared this with me previously, but when I hear you talk about it, it just, it just again drives home how fortunate we are to live in this country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. I mean, yes, no, no, it wasn't just it was today. This morning, I I went out, uh, my husband and I, we both put on our Canada Day t-shirts and red and white and everything. And even my dog, she has a Canada Day (laughs) bandana. So with the dog, you know, we went to the farmer's market and, you know, also to join the, you know, take a look at the parade uh, where I live. And uh, just walking back home, he, my husband, he, um, looked at me and he said, you know what, I cannot even imagine what our lives would have looked like 
if we had stayed in Iran, I think we would have been dead. And I told him, yeah, right on. I mean, yeah, we would. I mean, it, it, it just, even thinking about it makes my chest ache if we had stayed. I mean, horrible, horrible things had happened, but more horrible things would have happened. That they're still going on? Mm-hmm. It is, yeah, it is. So uh, how did you first, uh, when did you first, under what circumstances did you first think about Canada as a possible place to call home? Well, when I was released from prison in 1984, uh, after they decided that they had destroyed me, which was pretty close to the truth, but not entirely, uh, they let me go. Uh, I was just sort of 19, and um, I was this, I don't know, messed up uh, person. Uh, I didn't know I had post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, I was just messed up. And I came home, and um, my parents talked about the weather. I mean, nobody wanted to talk about it. And I just tried really hard to pick up my life where I had left it, but it was impossible. I mean, the government, I mean, I, I couldn't go back to school. Um, I didn't even have my high school diploma. And, and I mean, the government would have made my life misery if I had gone back to school. I mean, I could have, but they would have watched my every breath and every word and every move. So I studied at home. I got, at home I got my diploma, but they wouldn't let me in university. That was out of the question. So I got married. Uh, I married my boyfriend, who was the organist at my church, and uh, we moved to another city where he was teaching at the university. And um, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't get a job. I couldn't go to school. I was. It was just like I was released from a small prison, entered a really big one. Uh, I was. I was basically home all day, every day. I couldn't. I mean, it was really a big, huge prison. And uh, when my husband, uh, because his teaching at the university was really instead of military service, and Iran was at war with Iraq right now, uh, back then, and back then those years, and when he finished his obligation and his teaching came to an end, uh, we had had a son, and we looked at him and we thought, you know what, for him, we have to leave. Now, I wasn't allowed to leave, so it's a long story. But I um, eventually basically bought a passport. And uh, we left Iran. Back then, you needed a visa, you know, as I know you still do. Um, and you couldn't immigrate directly to anywhere from Iran. It was illegal uh, from the Iranian side. The Iranian government back then didn't allow people to immigrate anywhere or you know, anything like that. So the only country that gave us a tourist visa, and that's because we knew somebody at the embassy, was Spain. So we went there, and I wanted, we wanted to come to Canada because my brother was in Canada. He had left right at the time after the revolution, and we knew uh, firsthand, basically almost, how wonderful Canada was. And um, we also wanted to go somewhere where we knew somebody, and that place was Canada. But we also applied to Australia because, honestly, anywhere, anywhere. And uh, Canada answered first, and actually the Canadian embassy. I mean, uh, we went to Budapest. Um, again, it's a long story, but we ended up in Budapest. And when we went to speak with the ambassador, I mean, with the, at the interview, they were just so generous. They were so kind. I think for the first time in many, many years, I felt like a human being. I felt like... I was worth something. And you didn't have to look over your shoulder every second of the day. No, yeah. no. I, I mean, uh, we, did, we, I didn't believe it until we actually landed in uh, Toronto. 
And that was even then. I mean, when I looked around me, everything looked like the land of Oz. You know, I expected something to happen. I expected somebody to say, we made a mistake, just go away. You know, and the fact that it didn't happen, but I really, I was Dorothy in the land of Oz. I mean, everything was so weird to me. Everything was so strange, the fact that people just walked down the street and nobody harassed nobody, and that you could go to the store and you could buy things without bombs falling from the sky or something exploding in your face or you getting arrested because you didn't cover your hair properly. I mean, I can go on and on, but it was this surreal feeling. Like, I, I remember the, one of the first images was that I saw this man, um, older man, probably a grandfather, taking his daughter, granddaughter, probably to the park, and it was she was in the swing, and I was looking at them. They looked so peaceful, and I thought, wow. I mean, people actually can do that. People can actually be... Um, happy and comfortable. And that was a shock to me. So the normal things that we take for granted mm-hmm. for you was, was very special because that had been removed from your life and removed from millions of Iranians' lives. 2007, you, uh, you wrote the memoir, Prisoner of Tehran. Although 2007, you received the inaugural Human Dignity Award from the European Parliament for the book and your, and your act- activities internationally. And then you wrote the second book, After Tehran, A Life Reclaimed. And now you're in Canada and uh, with a good life and a life, in fact, reclaimed. I had a sense as you were talking to me, Marina, that you were reliving some of the things that, and how can you not relive some of the things that you, uh, that you experienced as you were talking to me? Yeah, it, it never goes away. Yeah. I mean, it's always there. You learn to deal with it. You learn to keep it at bay you, because if you let it uh, crawl, and it does, uh, you, if you allow it, if you don't, it, it, life becomes a never-ending right. battle. I, I have about 10 seconds, mm-hmm. and it deserves much more than that. But as you look down the road for Canada, for the future of this country, on its 150th birthday, what do you see? I see a country that is amazing and beautiful and generous and kind. At the same time, I see a place that can become even better, that can become a leader on so many good levels in the world. We can do it. I believe Canada can become even great, more wonderful, more welcoming, more um, human than, than it is. It's always good talking to you. Thank you so much for the time Thank today. Thank you so much for having me. Happy Canada Day. Happy Canada Day. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks. Marina Namat. And uh, again, her books are Prisoner of Tehran, and uh, the follow-up book was After Tehran, a life reclaimed, 16 years of age, imprisoned and tortured and threatened with execution. 16. We're back after this.